And now, business games. Welcome to episode 8 of season 1 of Business Games, an educational podcast where we apply game theory to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. We are delighted to have with us a first ever repeat offender, JP Kastlin. Hi, JP. Hello, Andre. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you. This conversation is going to serve a couple of purposes, and it's going to be a little bit different to the way that I usually uh, set up and I usually have all the other conversations during this season. We've started, you were the first ever guest, and we've started setting up the a whole kind of outline for the season with you in the very first episode. Mm. We talked about different contexts of uh, where one would look at experimentation and we just, just to uh, rehash them, the small versus large, corporate versus startup, uh, B2B versus B2C and so on and so forth. And then what happened is that I went away and um, had five, I guess, I believe five uh, conversations. Uh, we had an expert within each of those contexts to talk about um, their approach to experimentation or what they're seeing. And now I'm kind of bringing it all together. And so the listeners will uh, here, this is one of the last things that they hear. And so I wanted to have this arc and kind of close the 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 arc of the season. And wanted to also have this more of a maybe more of a conversation and less of a, an interview session. So it will be it will be slightly different. The listeners will hear maybe a uh, slight deviation from what they've heard before. Uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Mm. So I am preparing a members-only in-depth summary of the whole season, what we've learned, uh, where were the similarities between different contexts and what different people said, and what were the um, possible differences. For now, what I wanted to highlight is something that uh, you talked a lot about in the very first episode, and that is understanding humans as humans and looking at adaptive systems made up of human individuals who do stuff. And so there, there's a lot of agency in there. Interestingly enough, I've talked to a number of people within the tech sector, one of whom actually won a an of, officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit Award for Services to Technology. And not Every, I mean, not a single one of those people actually talked all that much about technology. Mm. And we've had we've had a uh, chief information officer. On the flip side, we talked a lot about psychological safety, creativity, culture, um, human interactions. So, um, and and I had not nudged them into those directions. Mm. Uh, I'm not. That, that go do an interview just yet. So it, it's something that had gone 
through the whole, this is just one thread that had gone through the whole season. I think it gives it, it's one of the probably major takeaways that I'm taking away about, about this topic as when, when you're approaching organizations and if you want to be uh, setting up experiments, you really need to think about the psychological aspects and the human side of it first and foremost. And then, you know, very distant second, maybe something else. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to highlight, where are my notes? The second point that I wanted to highlight and something that uh, you and I talked about as well is that why the concept of strategy, the, um, uh, a number of people um, that I talk to are quite well versed and quite senior uh, strategists, and uh, we did talk about that around New Zealand board table, for example. The concept of strategy is very much underdeveloped. Uh, a lot of people are trained in the in the '80s approach to strategy, and they confuse uh, strategic planning mm-hmm. for the the strategy and for the messiness of the world so for them it's more about just setting a plan and sticking to it rather than talking about emergent strategy emergent strategy is a topic that's itself emerging and i guess that was the second takeaway and then the third takeaway that i wanted to share here is Different people understand slightly different things under experimentation. And I actually deliberately had not defined what I mean by experimentation. Mm-hmm. But there are overlaps and there are some some consistent how-to pointers, uh, some of which are start with a hypothesis, write things down, test. And the hypothesis is an important part. And you talked about setting up contradictory experiments such that you can actually figure out what's going on. And it's different. I, I guess this, this is something that differentiates experimentation from just trying stuff out and seeing what sticks. Because trying stuff out and seeing what sticks is very much unguided. And sometimes people confuse that for experimentation, but experimentation is a more structured um, structured process than that. Yeah. So that's these are my three... Uh, things that I wanted to share now, and I, as as I am preparing a more in depth members on the uh, sharing, I'm still not done with it. Mm-hmm. So there will be more uh, more things. So that's what has happened on this side. Now I know that on your side a lot of stuff happened. Um, I've been following. Uh, not as much as I want to because I was busy putting this together, but I've been following strategy and praxis and the A, B, C, D, E. Does it have an E? Yes. Excellent. A, B, C, D, E framework. And I, um, yeah, so I know that a lot of stuff had been happening on your end about looking at developing the um, complex coherent approach to strategy. So now maybe you could share with us what, uh, how, what happened in the meantime, and whether there are some things that we discussed in the, you know, the first time around, whether some things had developed further. Um, sure. Um, so 
what I've been doing since um, is creating this thing called the ABCDE framework, which is a, effectively a way to uh, work with what I call naturalized strategy making in practice. Now, naturalized strategy making is a term that I've kind of half stolen from naturalized sense making uh, and works of you know, people like Snowden with Kenevan. Basically, the naturalized bit means that you rely on not only the traditional uh, sciences, but uh, uh, traditional pertaining to the, the relevant topic, obviously, um, but actually natural sciences as well. So it's a, a way of approaching strategy that's rooted in um, the traditional human sciences, but also things like physics, complexity science, and so on, um, because it appears to me that if there is a body of knowledge out there that basically tells us why people do certain things or why systems work in a certain way, then we should probably uh, incorporate that into strategy. Again, the ABCDE framework is very much my way of, of then taking that quote unquote movement um, to use a very grandiose term and then put it into something that people can actually work with and, and sort of fill in the blanks and, and uh, to work with in practice. And again, as you sort of alluded to, um, I have developed a couple of thoughts on this in my newsletter, which is called uh, Strategy and Praxis. So to take one example, um, the A in the, in, in the ABCDE stands for aspiration, as in strategic aspiration. And so for the last six weeks now, I've basically broken down various strategic concepts that have to do with aspiration. So for example, Stephen Bungay's strategic intent, uh, Roger Martin's uh, where to play, how to win. Uh, we've spoken, uh, last week was uh, Henry Mintzberg's concept of strategic perspective and so on. So every week we do one of those breakdowns and then eventually it will lead to the full introduction of the framework and uh, my book, which is basically also going to introduce it. So in terms of the theoretical work, that's very much been the thing, the big thing, um, and obviously the book and then the marketing week stuff. And then I've kind of toned down uh, client work at the moment just because, uh, well, the world maybe well, probably doesn't know this, but uh, we are, me and my wife are expecting our first child in a couple of weeks time. So, you know, that, that's, that's a, I would like to say, uh, by, by the time this stuff comes out. Yes. Uh, yeah. So congratulations. Well, thank you. Very and much. it's a momentous occasion that, that I think is, is, is going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, fingers crossed. Right. Um, but, uh, no, so yes, there'll probably be a couple of weeks or a couple of months uh, behind us now, but, um, yeah, so uh, most of my work at the moment is, is um, I suppose, rather theoretical in, in the sense of <clears throat> building stuff and, and thinking about stuff and writing stuff, but uh, for a good reason, let's say. Makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Go on. No, I mean, and, and so that's basically it. And um, in terms of experimentation, um, I'm not doing that much work with clients at the moment because of what i just uh mentioned um so practical stuff and experimentation not so much um and also um because of what i do um as a strategist most of the experimentation if you wanted to talk about what we mean by experimentation tends to be on a strategic level occasionally on a project management level where basically you launch new products projects um but in terms of, of developing products, for example, not so much at the moment. 
last time we talked about uh, that within the complexity, mm-hmm. one has to set up a number of experiments and uh, well, but one has to test a number of hypotheses and the hypotheses have to be uh, actually coherent. Some of them yeah. have to be mutually yeah, yeah, I mean, coherent, coherent is basically what we're looking for. So, yeah. um, and this also is something that I talk about a lot in, in um, my work. Um, so actually the C in the framework stands for coherence. So coherence is basically different from alignment. Uh, it's to do with consistency and being coherent to the facts of the organization, but also the facts of the world. Um, and so what this might mean for uh, experimentation, to take a, a practical example when you do this in terms of strategy, is that, so, okay, so let's imagine that you have a problem in your organization. Um, and so you get basically a couple of teams together, and then you give them, let's say you put three people in each team, and you have them go away uh, and think on their own for about 15 minutes. And then they're all, they all have to come up with sort of their own hypothesis and potential solutions for what you know the problem might be and how to solve it. And then they come back and they present it and you do, you know, again, like short presentation, um, you have a couple of questions and then that's basically it. Um, and then based on, and, and the 15 minutes can be three hours, whatever, but it depends on, you, you basically want people to get to the point quite quickly. Um, but then based on, let's say you have five different teams, right, to do this. Um, and then based on, if they're all saying the same thing, then probably you have an idea of what the problem is. If they're all saying things, saying things that, you know, the hypotheses are, maybe they're different, but they, again, seem coherent, then you allow them to actually, you know, go out and try the thing. If they all come back with, with ideas that are utterly nonsensical, all of them, well, one, you probably have an employee problem, but two, you have to go back to square one. So that would be an example of coherence within experimentation, if that makes sense. I think it does. And it's uh, a practical example of how to think through it and what to do. Yeah. And, and again, it, it's for the, you're basically trying to uh, just create a starting point. Um, and you're trying to increase uh, just diversity of thought. It's one of those things that people don't really get with complex problems. The complex problems are, of course, multidimensional. You can think of it as, I suppose, bramble bushes in a thicket, but think of it as a, a, a sphere, I suppose, as opposed to a, just a linear, like a line. Um, and so although we can't find every angle, we want to increase the number of angles that we're looking at the problem through. And so if you all think the same way, then you know we're going to have a problem because we're only going to have one view of the world. So this is one of those ways of, of um, building diversity. And you can create diversity within the team. So if you do, let's say that you give each team an hour each or whatever, uh, and each team is consist- consisting of three people, then you might want to get someone senior, someone junior, someone who's completely from a different part of the organization. Again, you want to design diversity, basically. Um, so, but yeah, anyway, so that's, yeah, that's one way of doing experimentation. We talked about once you're setting an expert uh, on before we started recording. Mm. We talked about um, moving things from one domain to another. So if you're dealing with a uh, chaotic domain, yeah, you need to impose 
a lot of rigidity and structure to kind of stabilize things and then release it a little bit. So once you've bought yourself in, in a way, once you've bought yourself some time, then you need to release it. I don't know if I'm making a lot of uh, sense. Well, I'll let you talk about it, but where I'm yeah. going with this is something that we, we wanted to to talk about is, um, is the COVID response. So I've been a little bit vocal on the social media about criticizing the New Zealand government's follow-up to what I consider as an outstanding initial response. Mm -hmm. The reason why I think it's an outstanding initial response is that um, in retrospect, we had bought ourselves 18 months of normalcy, quote unquote. Mm. I mean, we had a short and sharp lockdown initially, and then we were fine. Well, you know, the world was effectively burning. I mean, we closed our little island and um, we were able to go out without masks and continue life as we would normally do. Mm. I think it was bleedingly obvious that something like Delta would come in. It, it's not while uh, the original uh, outbreak caught the vast majority of people, not everybody, but the vast majority of people by surprise. I think by the time that uh, we, we started you know, seeing mutations, uh, I think you could, you could pretty much guarantee that something will sneak in and something will happen. And so what, and, and I, I mean, granted, I don't know the decision making process that the government have been going through. I don't know what they know, which is really key. But what I do know is that there, there, there had been no discussion about ICU beds, standing up extra ICU bed capacity. Um, depending on who you listen to, we we hadn't. Mm. Um, and we are very short on the ICU beds, even as we speak. Now, we had 18 months of runway. We had uh, no visible investment in um, healthcare. We, uh, we are turning away health professionals who are immigrants for some visa reason, whatever, I don't know, but but there are stories seeping in in the media that uh, qualified uh, foreign health professionals who are on short-term visas basically cannot get their visas extended and they have to leave the country. And that's for a, for a country that can ill afford uh, to, to lose uh, qualified people in the sector that's the, you know, prime of prime primary importance at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, what else have we done? I mean, I don't know, honestly, what the fuck have we been doing? And the, the, there, there's a lot of uh, debate about um, what I consider completely pointless things like when are we opening up or should we open up uh, the country or not open up the country? The, uh, and for, for all my criticism of the, of the current government, I got to say that uh, the opposition is even worse because the opposition has decided to take uh, snipes at some ridiculous topics and, uh, you know, like they, they nearly turned vaccination into a political discussion, which is really stupid, mm. in my opinion. So the opposition had not been asking the right questions in, in, in public and not been uh, holding the government to account. So he, here's the situation. We had a uh, what I think is really fantastic, you know, for, for a, due to a combination of factors, part of which is being uh, remote, which which in this particular case has been lucky. I mean, we were able to uh, observe what was happening in other countries and make uh, decisions accordingly. But we had bought ourselves 18 months of normalcy. Mm. 
What have we been doing uh, with it since? I'm not sure. The once the Delta came in, uh, we could not because it's a much more virulent and, and transmissible virus. We couldn't uh, do the same exercise as we did the first time. So basically, we've pretty much given up. Oh, the other thing is we didn't vaccinate the country on time. Why? Mm. There were reasons given, but uh, none all too great. And so now we're in this uh, race against time. We we are still in a lockdown. This is by far the longest lockdown that anybody um, you know anticipated or could have hoped for. And uh, it's like, I honestly don't know what's going to happen in the next month. Now, the same problem extends to businesses. All the businesses in the industries which are hardest hit, like hospitality and so on, um, are still complaining about being in a lockdown. Well, again, they had 18 months of good times and they could have pivoted or you know prepared for something like this. It was not like if you're doing your job well as, as a person running the business or on the board of directors or advisory board, like if you know what you're doing, you would be preparing for this eventuality. And again, you just bought yourselves 18 months of uh, effectively good cash flow. Why are you complaining now about the next, you know, another lockdown when that was inevitable? Anyway, that's that's my 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 rant is over. I'm kind of really frustrated both with the business community and the New Zealand government and the New Zealand opposition. Mm. Uh, but apart from complaining on um, social media, I can't really do much. I mean, in my own business, it had been pivoting. I mean, this whole thing uh, has been taking months, uh, but it, it was also several years in the running and it's just, it, it gave me the nudge. So I was able to control the cash flow for, um, like we exited our last client or the last client exited us as the case may be. It doesn't matter. It's, it, it was mutual because we've done quite a bit for them. There was not much we, we could do. They just finished in September. Uh, so having secured that, I was then able to actually not only deliver that, but also work on this project. And so hopefully this project is, is a bit, you know, more COVID proof than something else. But uh, I was way too late to the, to the game of preparing. But once I understood what was going on and I listened to some people, it, it was clear that, that a pivot, you know, had to happen, mm. that something else needed to be developed. And so uh, I'm in a similar situation to, most of New Zealand businesses, you know, in the sense that COVID did have a negative impact on our, like very negative uh, on on the even of consulting. And so business games was born. So I was, you know, I can't really blame anybody but myself for the actions of uh, the past 18 months, whether I was able or not able to, to pivot as the case may be, but blaming somebody else for things that were clear, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just beyond. Anyway, rant over. Um, but you had a point that you wanted to talk about uh, exactly on that imposing structure and the initial versus the follow up. Because let's face it, any shock, it, it, it's not just you know a shock and then we go back. Yeah. Right. There, there, there is a long, potentially long uh, tail of a shock, so to speak. And so the way that we do things at the beginning. I mean, strategy, I guess it's, a, it's another thing. Strategy is not a one and done thing. It's a repeated game. Mm. Uh, you do something today, uh, there will be tomorrow and tomorrow you'll have more information 
and your actions will depend on the actions taken today, but also depend on lots of other stuff. And so you need to adjust. Anyway, rant over from yeah. my side. Um, well, so I think that there are um, three or four things there to unpick. Um, but let's just to set the baseline so that everyone is, is on board with what we're talking about. Um, I'm just going to break down real quick the the three main systems that exist in nature. And this is if you're familiar with the Kinevin framework, then you're going to know this. Uh, if you're not, maybe this is news. But broadly speaking, you have three kinds of system in nature. You have ordered systems, you have complex systems, and chaotic systems. Now, ordered systems can be either clear or complicated. A clear ordered system is a system in which everyone knows that A leads to B. Everyone can see it. An example would be, say, making a cup of coffee, right? You put in the grounds, you put in the water, and then you turn on the machine, and out comes coffee. Uh, unless you're at Starbucks, in which case you get a dessert. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, then you have a complicated order system, which is basically where doing A might lead to B, it might lead to C, it might lead to D, um, but you're going to basically need an expertise within the field, either your own or external, to tell you which one is going to happen. So an example of that would be, let's say that your, your wristwatch stops working, right? You take it to an expert, they have a look at it, they analyze it, uh, and then they basically replace the cogs and whatever needs to be done, and you know, off you go, right? Um, and then you have complex systems. So complex systems are systems in which everything is interconnected, basically, uh, and there is no linear material causality. So this would be, for example, a firm or a market. You have various sort of moving parts, and if you put A in, then you have no idea what's going to come out the other side. Um, a lot of what we do as strategists is dealing with the complex, although it's not something that traditional doctrine necessarily uh, acknowledges. But then we have the third thing, which is chaos. So chaos are contexts that are completely unconstrained um, and basically up is down. So COVID was one of those massive things that actually for a lot of um, countries, uh, I was going to say companies, but that too, um, basically led to chaos in, in um, a technical sense. And what you tend to do when you're dealing with chaos is that you impose draconian rules. You're basically trying to give yourself time to act. So what the New Zealand government did, I think, really well, speaking as a Swede, um, is that they basically put in a lockdown really, really quickly. And what that allowed them to do, or should have allowed them to do, um, is then to collect information and sort of readjust. And this can you can contrast it, this with the approach of, let's say, the US and the UK, which instead sort of sought information and collected information until the, they reached a point where it was too late. Now, the problem, of course, is that you then have to actually learn something from that so you don't just impose the draconian rules uh, and then have no idea what to do next or so and this is the, the moving between domains so basically the draconian rules is to stabilize chaos and then you move into the complex domain in which you run parallel safe to fail experiments uh, and collect data and so on um, for businesses it's a you know you mentioned pivots and so on um, the base, businesses basically need to do the same, I suppose, um, or I would argue, as, as, at least if they don't have what I call an adaptive strategy in the first place. However, there is also, I think one needs to acknowledge the fact that that doing pivots, let's say, um, is often a lot easier in theory than in practice, because you have things like the entrenched place dilemma, which is that um, usually in order to um, 
build a new revenue stream, you have to basically sacrifice your current revenue streams. And if you're in a situation of uncertainty, people tend to gravitate towards the stuff that they, they've sort of known to work before. Of course, the problem with that of relying too much on the stuff that has worked before is that you tend to create a brittle organization and you focus too much on robustness or resilience. Um, but nonetheless, it is, it is an issue. And if we take um, just building on, on a recent work of mine within e-commerce, if you look at e-commerce, for example, so you have a traditional, let's say, physical storefront and then you go, oh, crap, COVID happens. We need to move everything online. Okay, you can do that. Um, and that's what most companies are told to do. The problem, of course, is that you're moving things from where the margin is higher to a place where usually you're looking at something that's margin ne- negative um, because the business model between the physical and the online is, is dramatically different. Physical, it's uh, sort of a many-to-one model where your customers infer the cost of travel, getting to your store, buying the thing, and so on. Whereas online, it is a one-to-many model where basically you have to take the whatever stuff it is that you're selling to um, to each and every customer. And it's a difference between being able to fill up your proverbial van every Wednesday and take it to, to the store, as opposed to having a bunch of vans with one package in each or a couple of packages and that, that, you know, the majority of which you then have to take back, of course, because people tend to order 10 things and return nine. Um, and so the, your basically your revenue might go up, but your profits and your profit margin is just going to go down which then creates another problem and so on. Um, so really, and, and this is now me being uh, very much sort of biased, of course, because this is now going into my uh, view of strategy, but as a, as a company, and this is a lot easier, I mean, you know, it's not very helpful to people who are in the weeds at the moment, but as a company, basically you want to build resilience and uh, build the ability to move quickly when you need to and adapt when you need to. It's not about going all in on agile and running after every ball or moving fast all the time, which you sometimes hear. It's about moving fast when it makes sense. Um, and if you've done if you've done that, I mean, a couple of clients that I work with that, that employ this, this approach to strategy, when COVID hit, they didn't have to change their strategies. They could just go on because they had built that resilience. Uh, whereas, a lot of traditional strategy is just focusing on the one thing. And when that one thing goes to hell because of things like COVID, well, then you're screwed. Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, the, the, the response of the government and the response of companies, um, it's easy in retrospect to say what they should have done. Um, it, there are certain ways of approaching this, as I'm sure you've, you've, your previous guests have said as well. Uh, but companies probably need to think a bit differently than they have historically. And, you know, uh, Dave Snowden says that that COVID is God, God's gift to men. And what he means by that is basically that it's it doesn't mean it literally and, and so on. Um, but he, uh, he basically what he means is that COVID has unearthed a lot of problems and a lot of things that should have been dealt with anyway. And it'll basically give us or leave us hopefully better prepared for the future. Um, I would say I'm, I'm not as optimistic and, and I don't consider, um, one, I'm an atheist, but two, I don't consider COVID to be a gift. Um, I would probably, I would probably have, would have preferred companies would have come to this conclusion without millions of people dying, but, uh, well, yeah. yeah, but that would be a different world. That's not the world we're living in. No, 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 of course not. But, uh, and, and you know, to his credit, he doesn't, again, it, 
he doesn't mean it like that. Um, he doesn't literally mean that, you know, it's a good thing that people died. But um, yeah, basically his point is no, that sure, no, people, no. Yeah, companies need to adapt and, and they should have adapted a long time ago. What we're seeing, starting to see now, um, not to sort of blow, blow my own horn too much, but what we're seeing is that people such as myself, but also obviously much better and, and more impactful and important people like Roger Martin um, are starting to move towards and sort of leaving the fray of this uh, move to more adaptive strategies and a new way of doing strategy that um, it's, it's much overdue. I think that makes a lot of sense, but in a way, uh, I, I, I want to get, okay, race car analogy. On adaptive strategy. Okay. Let me say this. Mm -hmm. uh, regarding, I made a couple of notes as, as, as you were talking. You're totally right. I just wanted to, um, regarding the pivot. Yeah. I, 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 I use that word, um, frankly speaking, I mean, again, it's one of those words uh, that, that many people can mean, you know, yeah completely different things by in, in the startup space uh, a pivot is quite often basically just throwing away everything that that you thought you were going to be doing and doing something completely different you know out of the left field and and that's and that's okay because the most important thing is the team i don't know whether that's true or not I'm a bit skeptical but but that you know that pivot is literally like anything else i i was more, more using a milder version in mm. the sense of you don't like, like say i'm because i'm taking note with um uh, with a pencil, right? So yeah. obviously, if you have a factory making pencils, uh, you have a factory making pencils. It's 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 very difficult, even within eighteen months, to just sell it and and buy a Starbucks franchise, right? And start making coffee. So you're kind of stuck making pencils. However, the way that you're making them could be different. The way that you are delivering them could be different. You're right about the the distribution stuff. Is that you know higher margin versus lower margin and and whatnot, but there's also a world which, which is quote unquote normal or pre 2020 where there, there were different structures uh, of um, fixed and variable costs. And uh, we found the most efficient way to, to play within that. Now, if you have a different world where your fixed and variable costs uh, have changed, then again, then, then find those. So what happened in New Zealand is that we, um, we had a world where, to, to take that example, or take that that uh, stickman analogy, I guess. We had a, a, a world where I think it was pretty clear that the fixed and variable costs were going to change. And yet we had 18 months of, we had bootstrapped our own kind of bridge that that, that was going halfway through a, uh, through a uh, uh, I don't know, ravine, uh, where we were still operating under the same fixed and variable costs. Mm. It's like, okay, great. But you already know that that's going to finish. Now you don't know when it's going to finish, but you know, it's going to finish. And so even suppose you even, you're even stuck with the, uh, pencil making factory, but the way that you're making and the way that you're distributing, you could, you could, you could already start thinking about different things. So when, when I say pivoting, it's not like we're still making pencils. It's not really, we're doing something completely different. I mean, I was okay changing my own uh, structure of the firm because uh, it's a very small firm and we're a service firm and it's, it's we don't have a factory, right? Mm. But um, 
like if you have uh, a lot of fixed costs like that's that's tough so that's fine mm. but then should change change the way that you are doing things to your um to your example with uh, home delivery and so on there was a a, a i think Ritson shared that example could have been in the netherlands maybe in australia mm. one retailer uh, grocery retailer uh, supermarket chain basically went into you can buy a small box or a large box of essentials and we're going to deliver it to you you can't choose your essentials you can't return and this is the price mm-hmm. so they took away because I, I i know people who are working for large supermarket chains in new zealand and i know for a fact like that's been in the news and and i know the the the, the back story that they were not ready for the volume that was gonna you know they all had online delivery and whatever those online delivery systems were crashing because of the volume it's like okay why because you still had the shift was we're going from uh you know store shopping where we uh, fill our baskets but we want to be doing exactly the same except online well okay that was not ready what this other supermarket chain in a different country did is, is they said well none of that is is gonna work we are going to deliver you a box of stuff and you can buy a large i don't know medium and, and or small box but you're just getting that because they had full control and they didn't need to uh, do with this complicated you know checkout and whatever it was a much simpler thing to implement uh, they were still delivering groceries they were using in the in the back they were using all the same uh, supply chains that they they had built and all the same kind of you know ordering systems and la da 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 so they didn't actually have to change much the only thing was that the was what was changing was the 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 imposed consumer behavior. It was a huge success, by by the way, by by all accounts, from at least from the article that was published twelve months ago. Um, the because they were also in charge of what they were serving and how they were serving, they minimized their. You know, I'm I'm pretty confident saying that their margin probably wasn't you know that that low, because they were able to have this fixed box of stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, no, to me, I, I just, I, I am quite skeptical of that, to be honest, because I've done a lot of analysis on e-commerce with James Hankins. We're doing a large white paper, and, and yeah. we've written about Market Week. And the fact is that um, although I suppose you could theoretically, um, you know, create a fixed offer that you're going to send to customers on the Wednesday and this, that, and the other, one, it requires scale. Otherwise, again, you're just sending the one van yes. with the one package. Um, but to inherently within the business model, there will be a margin shift just because you have to infer the cost of taking the goods to okay. to to okay. the uh, customer. Now, the other problem, of course, is that if you're um, if you're moving at the moment online, which a lot of companies are doing, usually the, even the success story. If you take something like Nike's, you know, direct, which they brag on and on about, but of course they won't mention the figures, is that actually when it when you look at it, is that it's margin negative even for the best companies in the world. That means that when you when you are increasing the overall revenue, when you're revenue, when you're increasing the overall volume, which is usually what the success story amounts to, then actually the 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 net contribution to the business is negative. Um, and so, although I mean, for this 
kind of company, if they can at least break even, it's probably good because it's better than, than not. Um, but fundamentally, e-commerce has an issue, and that's why final mile optimization, optimization is so uh, important. Um, but that's a whole different conversation, I suppose. I, 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 I agree. I mm. uh, don't know as much about it. I haven't researched as much as you did. I, I do have some friends who uh, work in, in those companies. and. Uh, so yeah, I'm no, I mean, I'm not from... saying I'm not saying that you're wrong. I, I, I'm probably going to ask. No, no, no. I'm article. talking about the distribution companies. But, so but I'm, yes, I'm, 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 uh, yeah. And also, I mean, no, no, no. It's, my... it's interesting as well. Is that if you look at the the just the distribution companies, if you look at the platforms, for example, for food delivery, none of them is profitable. Not even close. Um, yeah, which is also an interesting thing. So probably what we're going to see going forward is a lot of those companies are going to go. Yeah, because of the combination of the fixed and variable costs, and, and yes, the last mile, I am familiar with this. So what I wanted to say was about I have an, um, uh, some friends who are working uh, within the uh, logistics companies, and uh, they quote the last mile problem as, as yeah. basically nobody, nobody nobody has solved it yet. And um, so when when you mentioned that, it's yeah. like it made a lot of sense. Next is a good example of someone who has solved it, though. I, I should mention Next. So Next, for those okay. of you who don't know, is a basically retailer. And what they do is they do kind of like click and collect uh, mainly, which is a hybrid model. And that basically, once you can get the customer to come to you, what you tend to see is that your returns go down. People tend to buy more once they're in the store. They get the thing that they've sort of bought online, but they also buy this thing and that thing. Um, and if you can do those kinds of, of maneuvers, then you can shift the margin to your to your advantage. And then, you know, again, that's why Next is profitable. And, and out of all of the companies that we looked at, and we looked at a lot of companies from all kinds of, sizes and verticals we randomized the sample basically um mm -hmm. they were the sort of the outlier in a positive sense by far so again it is doable it's just that you have to think about it slightly differently and hybrid model at the moment is probably the best way to go but uh, anyway i digress yes and my point back to the uh, let, let's park this box yeah. thingy uh, i i might look up might be able to find the article and then uh, we'll we'll take this offline maybe I'll put uh, it in if, the show notes yeah. that's probably a good idea i what i want is i want to send it to you first and then mm -hmm. see if you had come across it and and whether that's uh, you know what, yep. what your opinion is and then maybe we will add it uh, to the show notes um right i was making a statement that the delta outbreak was predictable yes i would agree if even if the COVID wasn't right the mutation was predictable the fact that it's gonna seep in was predictable mm -hmm. having bought ourselves 18 months of stuff it was naive to think if anybody thought that that was just continue mm -hmm. so and while it is not like yes pivots are difficult but if you know that and pivots are difficult because of the other point you said is is that nobody wants to give up a current, um, you know, successful income stream. Yes, if you think that that current successful income stream is still going to work hmm. going forward. And by the way, milk it for all you can, right? That's that's fine. That's why it's there. Mm -hmm. But buying yourself time and milking that like it, it was the world is changing right we're not going back to normal yeah. the old normal whatever the new there's no new normal we, we're still not there we don't know what's gonna happen what what is important is that 
I think it's it's pretty clear that we're just not going back. And so having having observed that, even if you couldn't pivot away from what you were doing, mm-hmm. you definitely should have pivoted away from how you were doing or at least started discovering new things. So that 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 was my point. Yeah. The regarding the Snowden's comment, I I I okay, I'm gonna get you know macabre or or, or godly, but I, I at face value his comment makes sense, and I, I think I do agree with that. And here's here's why. It reminded me of the discussion that I I don't believe that I've read it anywhere. I don't believe that I. You know, there's there's like an article, there might be an article, I don't know. I don't think that I've referenced it and don't think it's coming now. I I can't remember everything that we talked. I don't think it's coming from my guests either. Mm. I think it's coming from um, various members of the director uh, network that, that, that I'm part of. If you remember, um, about a decade ago, sl- slightly, so about... 10 to, to, to 12 years ago, there had been, in quick succession, there had been uh, two major uh, earthquakes that befell Christchurch. So Christchurch was, you know, it's the largest city on the South Island, uh, one of the three main cities in uh, New Zealand. And don't come at me if you're living in another city that you think is top of, you know, one of the three main cities. And But, but I do think it's uh, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch. Uh, and... It, it basically leveled uh, Christchurch quite, quite, quite a bit. What happened, though, is that in in uh, whatever businesses survived, they started planning for a. Uh, they they started preparing their business continuity plans uh, with the question: What would happen if we can't go back to the office? Mm-hmm. So. Knowing, you know, having having talked to a number of directors around, mm. uh, the ones that were coming from Christchurch or from Canterbury who had gone through that with their businesses, you know, ten years ago, they were like, okay, we don't exactly know what's gonna what's gonna happen, but we know that we can't go back to the office, and we have a contingency plan because we had the contingency plan, you know, from ten years ago when we had gone through this, or not not this, but you know, we weren't able to get back to the office. Uh, Melissa, who, um, uh, who who I talked to, who is an established director, she wanted uh, she she not she wanted she actually, I think that's episode number four mm-hmm. uh, that that people will have listened by the time this airs. She actually predicted the pandemic partly because one, like she uh, studied uh, pandemiology as one of her things, and she, she was looking out uh, for signals. And she started working with her uh, client companies, asking exactly the same question. Uh, this stuff is likely coming. We don't know what it's going to look like. So that was back in, in February. 2020, mm-hmm. which said, you, we need to start preparing for what if we can't get back to the office. So these are the types of things that I think people, um, you know, can learn from from this. Uh, should it have taken COVID? No, it probably should not have taken COVID. To, you know, so I'm with you. I, I mean, should, yeah. should, should, do, do we need... Uh, 
by all accounts, if you look at the excess deaths, it's it's way more than 4.7 million. It's, it's more like 15, 17 million. Yeah. Uh, depend, I mean, there's a wide range, but but it's it's more than the official numbers. Did, did we need all of that? Uh, no, we, we, we didn't need all of that to be, but <laughs> unfortunately here we are. Yeah. But the, usually the companies that do survive a shock like this, I do believe that they're, you know, and people that survive a shock like this, I do believe that, that I hope, I hope that they are a bit more prepared. Uh, having said that, I've also heard somebody reference um, a, a, a young by age, but I think a senior um, senior person one in some company, possibly mm-hmm. finance, I don't know, I don't actually know, but I, I was around the table with, and, and the guy said, oh, I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to when this is over and uh, you know because i'm looking forward to get to get back to certainty and uh, i it, it wasn't the forum to say that but my co- comment in my head immediately was like what certain like we are not living in a certain world why do you think that there would if, if you're thinking that there is a world back there somewhere where we had certainty it's like well yeah. Maybe you shouldn't be in that position. No, I mean, it, his comment is stupid for two reasons. One, we won't get rid of COVID. There will always be a different variants of COVID going forward. You know, we'll have vaccines, but it'll, it'll be a part of, of uh, I suppose, daily life. The other thing I think is stupid regarding his comment is that, the, exactly to your point, this about some perception of certainty. There will never be full certainty. We don't live in an ordered system. We live in a complex system. <laughs> so it doesn't really make sense. I think the, the larger problem here is that... Um, so contrary to popular belief, and, and it's this is a good sign of people who haven't actually read the book, COVID is not a black swan, it's a white swan. Pandemics are explicitly mentioned as um, white swan, as being predictable. Uh, and Taleb himself has gone on and, and written about this. Uh, but what we're looking at for COVID is a so-called fat tail event. So, you know, in a complex distribution of events, then things happen in the long tail, and then they move up sort of uh, the system and then they eventually take over the system if, if you know as the case may be such as for example with COVID now uh, and then that can lead to take chaotic results now the challenge I think um, I think a lot of companies knew that a pandemic might happen um, you know because this has been on the broader corporate agenda for a long time same, same thing with working from home I mean working I wrote a, a piece for marketing If you want to listen to the rest of this podcast, go to www.business-games.ai and subscribe to the premium version of this podcast and get your personal RSS feed. We'll get new pricing. Thank you very much for listening and supporting us.